Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 82 of the program that, much like Roy Oswalt, consistently provides solid, if unspectacular, results with a homespun style that might prolong its relevance as it ages. (laughs) Diamond Roy announced his retirement today. But we have no plans to hang up the mics just yet. In as fact, much as you may want us to. <laughs> <laughs> and you haven't even heard this episode yet. <laughs> we actually have a fantastic show on tap for you, including an interview with baseball prospectus editor-in-chief Ben Lindbergh, who wrote the essay on the Orioles for this year's recently released Baseball Prospectus Annual. You're going to want to stick around for that one. We've also got a musical installment in our seventh-inning sketch series. And don't worry, we're not singing. <laughs> no, we've... We've brought in professionals for that. Outsourcing. (laughs) We will also be bringing you our most famous recurring segment, the Wayne Krenchicki Franchise Report. There were a lot of memorable characters on the American League champion 1979 Orioles, but only three of them posted an on-base percentage south of 200. (laughs) And Wayne was one of them, which is why we pause each week to honor his legacy. But before we get to all of that... My esteemed colleague, Alan Smith, is here to tell you about the significance of episode 82. Because, Baltimoreans, episode 82 corresponds to the Major League Baseball record for the most errors committed in a single game. That's right. 82 errors occurred in a 23-inning match played in 1939 by the St. Louis Browns, the physical franchise who would later move to Baltimore and become the Orioles, and the Sioux Falls Jackanapes. Interestingly enough, players combined for the record 82 errors in only 19 innings, after which the mercy defensive rule was made up on the spot, added to the rulebook, and they stopped counting for the remainder of the game, which is good. The most impressive event of the evening, and still a major league record in its own right, included a seven-error inning by a single player, which concluded with Jack and Ape's second baseman Ernie Cleft, who booted a ground ball, scooped it up, and sailed it over the head of first baseman Montrose Fisheye Gilman, spiked his glove in disgust, leaving him unable to field a return throw from Gilman, who had tracked down the ball, attempted to catch said throw anyway, breaking his pinky finger and letting the ball fly into left field, becoming blinded by the pain of his injury and attempting to tackle the runner advancing to third, but instead colliding with the knee of shortstop Burt Penis Jones and knocking himself out cold. The official scorer also gave Cleft an error when the medical team, attempting to stretcher him off the field, slipped on the rosin bag and dumped his comatose form in a heap on the pitcher's mound, which baseball historians have deemed a particularly harsh ruling. This is also, for history buffs, one of the last games during the 1939-1945 rule change that allowed field players to be replaced by people wearing full advertisements for U.S. war bonds for innings at a time, meaning that center fielder Don Wrinkles, who was saddled with a don't-let-that-shadow-touch-them poster, was responsible for a series of dropped fly- pop flies, and that Brown's third baseman Pete Mushcamp 
wearing the always stylish Keep Them Flying, recorded an error when a screaming line drive ricocheted off his sandwich board. That was, of course, followed by the hapless pitchman stumbling into Browns pitcher Wilford Willie Wilcox as they both charged for the ball that still spun on the infield grass. The third and final error on that particular play came as a disjointed mushcamp grabbed the ball and fired it, accidentally, into the Jackanapes dugout, where it struck and mortally wounded Jackanapes pitching coach Vernon Seedlepoof. It was later discovered, Baltimoreans, that Seedlepoof was a double agent for the Japanese, deep undercover in the Napes dugout, and trying his best to infiltrate the well-known Sioux Falls Department of Wartime Code Generation, which of course gave us the Wind Talkers, a group of, ironically, Navajo, whose language was so different from other language bases that the best codebreakers in the game were unable to parse through it. Mushcamp was later awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his actions during that game, which probably lessened the sting of the eventual 16-15 defeat at the hands of the Jackanapes. So that's a little history lesson for all of you on the 82nd episode of Baltimoreans. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It is time, of course... For our most popular recurring segment, the Wayne Krenchicki Franchise Report. On the Wayne Krenchicki Franchise Report, of course, ladies and gentlemen, we take the three most relevant items from Birdland and beyond. We assess them a rating ranging from strikeout to home run. Mm-hmm. News item number one today on the Wayne Krenchicki Franchise Report. Rock Kubatko posted a blog item this afternoon suggesting that Alfredo Aceves or as Jim Palmer calls him, Aceves, could be among the strong contenders for a rotation spot in the increasingly likely event that the Orioles are unable to sign one of the few remaining free agent starting pitchers. <laughs> Alan Smith, your thoughts? Oof. That's an error. <laughs> we've, we've technically reached first base, but it's only because someone else messed up. <laughs> okay. Look, Alfredo Seves can come in and he can throw some innings. Sure. And he'll sweat a lot and he'll be a little bit crazy and that's going to happen and whatever. I I just I can't I can't get excited about it one way or the other. But you're not going to what's not going to happen is I'm not going to get up and cheer for him potentially becoming an Oriole. It's a, it's an error. It should go down as such. We do have technically have a base runner, but it is not any of our doing and uh man that's a really depressing thing to be our second best signing in the offseason. It's it's like hoping it's like hoping for a one-run victory. <laughs> um I'm going to I'm going to call it what am I going to call it? I'm going to call it an infield single. Okay. Okay. And the reason I'm going to call it an infield single is because an intentional infield single or a swinging bunt? Um a swinging bunt. Okay. Because I think it is possible that Alfredo Aceves, or again, as Jim Palmer loves to call him, Aceves. <laughs> it's going to be a long year. <laughs> um, I, I just, every time I hear that, I always think Alfredo Aceves should have a band called Aceves and the Heavies. <laughs> but since that dream is never going to come true, uh, the reason I call it a swinging bunt infield single is because it'd probably be a... Uh, Probably be a, like a death black metal group. I oh think. yeah, that would be yeah. that. He he looks like someone who could front that. Either that or electro pop. <laughs> anyway, the reason I say a swinging bun single, uh, if you would let me finish, Alan, is 
<laughs> is uh, that I think Aceves is the kind of pitcher who can be good for a four-month period mm. in a way that Miguel Gonzalez has been really good for a four-month period. Okay. And, and Wei Yin Chen can be good for four-month stretches. And I think he has the potential to pull something like that off in a bridge type of fashion such that if we get uh, partway through the year and Gosman has been throwing well in long relief and around uh, the all-star break we feel like it's time to move him into the starting rotation and he's ready to assume that mantle or maybe um, it's the middle of the year and Garza hasn't worked out for the Brewers and he's on the trading block again and we make right. a move to get him or uh, who knows, Bundy comes back throwing absolute smoke from mm. Tommy John surgery, mm. and we decide it's time to promote him. Now That's I'm, a beautiful dream. I'm, I'm, I'm really getting pie in the sky. Aceves <laughs> um, is the kind of pitcher who has the potential to, to serve that bridge function. It's just that it's so unlikely that it'll happen. <laughs> also, I'm a little bit concerned that the last time he successfully served a bridge function was 2011. <laughs> Item number two, Sam. Irvin Santana's agent is named Bean Stringfellow. Discuss. This is a home run. Goodbye, home run! <laughs> this is a round tripper. Uh, I, I <laughs> We're going to talk to Ben Lindbergh, the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, later in the program. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite passages in this year's edition of the Baseball Prospectus Annual is where they talk about David Ortiz. Uh-huh. And their, their final point about Ortiz is that uh, whether or not you root for him, uh, you you can't deny that he's one of the game's great characters. Okay. That there are there are so many things to there are as many things to love about him as there are to hate about him in a game. They say which very often tries to kind of subdue and subjugate that about its central figures. And Bean Stringfellow is a reminder that there <laughs> <laughs> is just. A lot of really silly stuff in baseball, <laughs> and it can be very easy, particularly in a long, dark off season, to get a little too serious about it. So uh, I think I think Bean Stringfellow is um, it's like it's like Jeff Rebelay sneaking one over the left field wall <laughs> when we're down thirteen to two. Why not? Sure. Why not? Why not? Take your time rounding the bases there, uh, Mister Rebelay. Well, I would give it a home run. But um, for me, it has to be an inside the parker because much like you say, it has to be a little bit silly. <laughs> it's great. It's fantastic. But something needs to be bouncing around in the in the in the corner of the left field and the wall and someone needs to fail to dig something out and probably someone else fell down. <laughs> OK, <laughs> so it was not unlike the uh, not unlike the scenario that you described in your in your typically brilliant intro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's an Ernie Clefts kind of situation. <laughs> I would like to point out just in the in the pantheon of really tremendous uh, names. Mm. Um, also on uh, MLB trade rumors this week was the headline that uh, there is apparently a baseball player named Layson Septimo, um, who will be pitching this year for the Independent Atlantic League's Lancaster Barnstormers. The Lancaster Barnstormers, right, of course. Mr. Uh, Septimo should perhaps have stuck with his true calling as a Skyrim character. <laughs> it does sound a little bit like a random collection of letters. <laughs> All right, Smith. Item number three uh-huh. on the Wayne Krenchicki franchise report. According 
to a report in the New York Times, Republican Congressman Tom Cole and Democratic Senator Maria Cantwell sent a strongly worded letter this week to NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, urging him to support changing the name of the Washington Redskins. Among the choice quotes from the letter, Senator Cantwell writes, quote, You're getting a tax break for educational purposes, but you're still embracing a name people see as a slur and encouraging it. Goodell's response, and I quote, This is the name of a football team. A football team that has had that name for 80 years and has presented the name in a way that has honored Native Americans. (laughs) Now I realize... As I read you this headline... Roger Goodell is just going to... He's going to go down with the ship. (laughs) He's decided, I am the captain of this vessel, and I will will stand on deck, and I will soak whatever is coming at me as I fiddle as the ship sinks. He's he's a company man, Roger Goodell. And why wouldn't you be at that salary? (laughs) Yeah. 29.5 million. You you couldn't pay me enough to be... I mean, you could pay me enough to be that kind of company man. There is a price tag. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually significantly less than what Roger Goodell makes. (laughs) Let's be honest with ourselves. So I realize, Smith, it's it's a little bit unclear from the way I've phrased this what I'm asking you ah. to give a score to. Sure, there are from, a couple of different things from strikeout to home run. So why don't we why don't we have you split your score? Uh, okay. Why don't you give a score to the letter from Congressman Cole and Senator Cantwell? Okay. And then give a separate score to Roger Goodell's response. Well, I'm actually I'm actually going to to take a third route instead. Oh. I'm going to paint you a scenario. Please do. Where I think this is a home run. Because right now, I don't think it's a home run. I think the letter is interesting and is probably a single. I think Goodell's response is fairly typically idiotic and is maybe a hit batsman. <laughs> but imagine this. Michael Sam is a young man who is playing football up until recently for Missouri Tigers. Mm-hmm. He just came out as a, uh, a, a, a gay athlete um, and his currently sitting there um, expected to be drafted in one of the first three rounds, maybe the fourth round of of this year's NFL draft, barring a disastrous combine. Now, in a scenario in which the Washington Redskins draft Michael Sam, then I think we have what may be the greatest conflagration of political stories about a sports team to to, to sort of all coalesce at the same time unless we can get chris cluey in as the punter and then you'll just have the most fantastically politically toxic scenario ever i think that's the way dan snyder should go i think he should embrace it the only way he's gonna be able to keep the name redskins is if he goes out and goes and gets michael sam with a second round pick slightly overpaying for him but that'll be okay because Mm -hmm. It'll be it'll be a a decision worth being made, and God knows the Redskins need some help rushing the quarterback. And you know that that is a really brilliant solution, Smith. And you know that Dan Snyder's the kind of guy who'd be like, "Team does have a racist name, but do you guys remember that time I drafted a gay linebacker? Yep, that's, remember when see, I did that? See, that's I. What a guy! I firmly believe that he has the sort of mental calculus. That would allow him to weight those two things together at the same time and come up with one of them being slightly heavier than the other and thus make it all okay. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Even though that's not how life works. Well, uh, I I want to I want to just call out two quick things about Roger Goodell's response to the letter. Um, 
One of them being, uh, they're, they're, uh, again, Senator Cantwell writes, you're getting a tax break for educational purposes, but you're still embracing a name people see as a racial slur and encouraging it. His response, again, and I quote, <laughs> this is the name of a football team. <laughs> so uh, really just very fine work there saying <laughs> that uh, the name of a football team is more important than the dignity of an entire race of people. Sure, sure. Um but but also with that, uh, the fact that it's a football team in the NFL and that it's been around for 80 years is exactly the reason that it should be changed. Right. Because it's so visibly on the wrong side of history. And these are the levels at which we need these changes to take place so that people recognize, oh, I take a lot of really messed up stuff for granted on a yeah. daily basis. And who is it hurting? Like, who is it hurting to change the name? People change the name of sports teams all the time. Owners are fine ripping sports teams away from the people who have rooted for them for years, moving them across the country, and totally rebranding them. You can't tell me that that doesn't happen all the time, as evidenced by, oh, I don't know, say the Baltimore Colts, <laughs> like, leaving town and becoming... In the a, middle of the night. ...an entirely different team. So, uh, yeah, total bunk. Get out of here. Yeah. So now we're going to go talk to somebody <laughs> who has um, intelligent, thoughtful opinions based not on feelings, but on cold, hard facts. Indeed. Indeed. Ben Lindbergh is our guest this evening, ladies and gentlemen. He is the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. You probably have already bought and read the entire 2014 annual uh, and if you did, you read his essay on the Orioles. We're going to talk to him about that as well as some other things in just a moment. For the true all-weather fan, spring begins not on the day that pitchers start playing long toss and running wind sprints in Sarasota, but rather the moment the Baseball Prospectus Annual arrives in the mailbox, announcing the imminence of summer with an intimidating thud. Clocking in at 608 pages, the annual features in-depth analysis and projections for every player in the league, as well as provocative essays on the state of each organization, brimming with insights, horrible puns, and Brigadoon references in equal abundance. Joining us tonight is the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, who also penned this year's essay on the Orioles, Ben Lindbergh. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you. I also penned most of the horrible puns, I'm afraid. <laughs> Someone's oh, no. got to do it. <laughs> you, are, you are in friendly territory for horrible puns. Are you, are you, are you personally an Orioles fan, or do you, have you um, shed uh, fan allegiances? I'm yeah, I've sort of given up any allegiances I had. I grew up in Manhattan, so I was nominally a, a Yankees fan. Um, <laughs> Boo, so. hiss. End right, of interview. Good night, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in your, your essay on the Orioles, um, you credit the organization with some smart trades and some scrap heap acquisitions, um, as well as developing some quality core talent from within. In the end, though, you kind of reach a conclusion, which I'm sure resonates with a lot of Orioles fans, that Dan Duquette has yet to make any sort of serious moves in the free agent market during his tenure at the helm, and that might be the last piece of the puzzle if the Orioles want to establish themselves as some sort of serious contender. So do you think that rolling the dice on some upper-tier free agent is simply a pill the team needs to swallow if they want to stay relevant? 
I do, and I, I think generally it's a pill that any competitive team has to swallow, and I, I think Duquette has done a, a good job, and you can point to all sorts of moves he's made on the margins that have helped the team, lots of smart pickups and, and getting people that were cast-offs from other teams that had been given up on, and he picked them up as free talent, basically. I, I made the case in the essay that most of the team's core talent comes from prior to the Duquette era, the, the McPhail, McPhail years, and even yeah. before that. Uh, even if you look at, at the 2012 Orioles' success, it's like over three-quarters of their wins above replacement, according to Baseball Prospectus, were from players who, who preceded Duquette's arrival. Uh, and then last year, that percentage only rose. So hmm. you're talking about uh, smart smart signings, smart trades uh, that were made before he even showed up. Guys like Chris Davis and Adam Jones and J.J. Hardy. But I think he's done a good job supplementing the core players that he inherited. It's just that it's difficult for really any team to to build a contender from within or just by plundering other organizations, eventually you have to supplement the the homegrown players that you have with free agents. And uh, that's something that he hasn't really done. And, and I wouldn't necessarily hold him responsible for that. I don't know whether he is. <laughs> I'm sure he would have preferred to spend a bunch more money if he, if he had been allowed to, but um, it's something that if you look at his history with the Red Sox, you can, you can look, you know, back a decade or more ago, he made a lot of smart moves, lots of constant tinkering, much like he has with the Orioles. But he also eventually brought in people like Pedro Martinez and Manny Ramirez right, right, and Johnny right. Davin, big, big ticket guys. Not uh, just and, marginalia. Right. And at some point you need to do that, especially if you're in a division with a bunch of other teams that don't hesitate to do that. So yeah. do not hesitate um, at all. <laughs> not, not at all. No. Uh, and it seemed like there might be a, a window there of sorts where the Yankees were looking sort of weak and at least the Red Sox had that blip season and the Blue Jays haven't been winning. And yeah, that so was a lovely, seemed... that was a lovely five minutes when it looked like the Red Sox <laughs> and Yankees were vulnerable. Right. Uh, so that never lasts particularly long. So that window is kind of closed and it's just, it's tough for a team to, go into a season with obvious holes like the the Orioles have for the last couple seasons, not only just the the rotation weaknesses, but, you know, kind of black hole positions where you could look at them <laughs> on opening day and say, this is not going to be a productive position. You can't go into a season with, you know, Brian Roberts and Ryan Flaherty and Wilson Betamit and expect big numbers out of those guys. And they didn't get big numbers out of those guys. But uh, to an extent, they're sort of going into this season with the same question marks, Flaherty and Weeks and Reimold and, and you know, guys who could put together strong seasons but aren't really people that you can count on. So I'm putting, there are... I'm putting a lot of emotional weight behind someone named Henry Arudia who I really <laughs> just don't think is going to be worth my emotional investment. <laughs> yeah, there, there are a lot of sort of prop bets like that that might or might, or might not pan out and... And there's still time, of course, and, and you know, the Orioles' offseason has been very slow. I mean, I like Ryan Webb as much as the next guy, probably more than the next guy. But when, <laughs> when that's your headline move of the winter, which to this point it sort of has been, yep. um, <laughs> there's that's not much to hang your hat on. And, and the Orioles have been connected to lots of arms who've been available and only some of them have failed physicals, so that's not <laughs> the reason that they haven't ended up in Baltimore. But eventually you need to make a move. Duquette has 
express the intention to make a move and there still are more than the the usual amount of impact players available so it's possible that we will still see them add someone well, I think that's that's the thing that has maybe been the most frustrating for a lot of Orioles fans is as you look at the free agent market this offseason, uh, Irvin Santana and until recently Bronson Arroyo and Ubaldo Jimenez have just been sitting there seemingly for the taking and and they fill obvious holes, as you say, that we have. And yet we, we just don't seem to be able to get it done. Mm-hmm. And then A.J. Burnett failed a constitutional. and right and there was some speculation i saw dan Connolly wrote that maybe the the previous failed physicals was a factor uh in bronson arroyo's decision (laughs) to go to arizona so that could be coming back (laughs) so it's uh so it's tough yeah all right well well moving away from the orioles then and and over to the bp annual the preface to the bp annual is always a really great overview of baseball prospectus's philosophy And this year in particular, there's an interesting passage where the authors of the preface, Sam Miller and Jason Wojciechowski, talk about the ways in which the somewhat adversarial relationship between proponents of advanced statistical analysis and traditional scouting has started to soften. Can you give us any insights on the development of that relationship and how you envision it taking shape going forward? Yeah, I, I think it's sort of evolved since certainly since the beginning of Baseball Prospectus, which is closing in on two decades now. Um, at the beginning of that time, there maybe was more of an adversarial relationship than there is now. I think probably it was always a bit overblown. The the portrayal in, you know, like the Moneyball movie is probably a, a bit of a caricature. But I would uh, hope so. <laughs> yeah, but to a certain extent, there was some distrust, some animosity there, which makes sense because you had people who, you know, had been in the game for a long time and were not necessarily ready for these new ideas and maybe considered them a threat. And then you had the people who had the new ideas and were frustrated that they weren't able to get them accepted by the people who were in power. And so there was this distrust of of scouting information to an extent because it is subjective information and and that kind of made people who had you know made their money on analysis and looking at numbers and looking at facts sort of suspicious of those things and and there are reasons to be suspicious of it but i think now we realize that that is also data and information mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's the input and the opinion of smart people who have watched a lot of baseball over the years and uh, and now I think we we play in both of those sandboxes. So, you know, our, our scouting content at the site is really as prominent as as the statistical content. Now we've had teams hire some of our people as as scouting mm-hmm. executives and scouts, which is a change because it used to be always uh, statistical analysts who were who were getting poached. Hmm. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I went to scout school last year and and teams. Oh, cool. that, yeah, and, and teams that are uh, a lot of teams are sending you know their statistical analysts to scout school to kind of get an exposure to that part of the game, and then you can find scouts who are very savvy about numbers and and use that to inform their opinions about players. So I think the uh, acceptance of that information has changed, and probably the the tone with which it's delivered has also changed. Going back to to the beginning of BP, and and I've just been at BP for a a few years now, so this is not really during my tenure, but 
early on there was kind of this very snarky biting tone you know everyone was stupid every decision <laughs> was dumb this player should play more this manager doesn't know what he's doing right and I think maybe that was an appropriate tone for the site at the time. It it uh -huh. got BP on the yeah, map. Make your kind waves, of. yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. right. It helped. It helped gain the site some attention, and uh, and there were more targets. I think more legitimate targets for that kind of commentary than there are now. So now it's it's harder to maintain that tone because every team is really smart, and and people have been <laughs> yeah. working at BP for a while have former BP coworkers who now work for a team. Uh, or other people from similar backgrounds who now work for a team. So it's harder to just do that sort of reflexive snark when a, a team makes a move. And and we kind of try to acknowledge that teams have access to information we don't and expertise that we don't. And while they might still make mistakes sometimes, they're usually doing it after at least considering the implications of their decisions. Sure. Yeah, and they're all really listening to you, <laughs> which is kind of nice. Yeah, um, kind of scary also. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you, you also note in the preface that um, you, you guys are still looking for a, a meaningful way of figuring out or translating uh, an analysis of managerial statistics into a metric about that manager's impact on the team's success. So mm -hmm. that is still a place in which intangibles reign, right? Mm -hmm. um, so w w given the difficulty in, in quantifying that sort of thing, do you have a, a, a pick for your best manager in the game right now? And what do you well, think is sort of differentiating that person from uh, from the pack? Yeah, it's difficult. When we, when we write manager comments for the book and we do manager comments for every chapter, uh, we have statistical reports on the site where you can look up all sorts of things about managers, you know, how, how quick their hook was and how many pitching changes they made and how many intentional walks they called for and sacrifice bunts and all those things. And you can kind of look at some of those things and say, well, he, he didn't give away many outs, it looks like. So that's sort of a, a mark in his favor. But when you talk to everyone in the game, it seems like all those little uh, in-game tactics are kind of dwarfed by just the, the leadership aspect and the motivational right. aspect. and The clouds of it, dust kicked. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> And even though we have people now who are credentialed and are in clubhouses and go to games, even if you're a writer who's covering one team every day, there's still a lot that takes place behind closed doors that you don't see. And sure. certainly you don't see what happens in the other 29 clubhouses every day. So it's hard to compare and establish some sort of baseline. So uh, I don't know when we... When we do manager of the year voting, we, we ask the staff members to submit their picks for manager of the year at the end of each season. I generally abstain from that if I can <laughs> uh -huh. get away with it just because I feel like I don't have a great handle on that. I I sort of lean toward uh, managers who are very open and receptive toward uh, input from the front office. I think right. that's mm. probably the, the most important thing. I, I don't feel like I can gauge who's a, a good leader all that well. I, I hear what, what writers say and what players say, but I don't know how much I can trust that information. So as long as there's no obvious red flag, as long as it's not a, a Bobby Valentine situation where you have <laughs> the, the team, you know, mutinying and, and rebelling and like tying the guy to the mast and right. trying to get him fired. Uh, if that sort of situation is not present, then 
then I, I kind of give the edge to people who seem to welcome input from the front office because there are people in every front office who have this expertise that managers don't have and don't have time to acquire, really, that, that can run these analyses and look at the numbers and the implications of every move. And you want a manager who is open to that information. So, for instance, Clint Hurdle last year is a, uh-huh. a you know former player, old school guy. Uh, but when Neil Huntington and Dan Fox and, and the Pirates Brain Trust went to him and said, we can we can add runs, we can add wins by shifting aggressively and, and using all these sort of sabermetric principles to yeah. to gain to gain outs, uh, he was receptive to it. He could have said, no, I, I know how the game is played and we didn't play that way in my day and I'm not going right. to preside over that sort of thing. But he he okayed it and he promoted it um, and it worked out really well for them. So, uh, you know, he and John Farrell, who sort of had the same thing, you know, he and Brian Butterfield, one of the Red Sox coaches, were pretty aggressive about shifting and about base running and talking to Tom Tippett, one of the Red Sox smart stat guys about how to maximize value on the bases and all of those things. So when I see that, I think it's probably a positive. I guess, you know, Joe Madden, Joe Madden is kind of the the archetype of that yeah. Yeah. sort of manager, that model of manager. So um, I, I can't come up with a, a good argument for why he wouldn't be the best manager. My, I, I guess the, <laughs> the, the error bars. <laughs> yeah, the, the error bars and the margin of error, they're very, very wide, but... Uh, if I had to to pick one guy, I suppose I would go with him with the caveat that I'm sure there are several other managers who are not too different. Yeah, well, you got to love you got to love Joe Madden because he obviously understands all the advanced ways of looking at the game. But he also understands that sometimes you have to bring some penguins into the clubhouse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. You have to have the whole team wear plaid or have mohawks or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Things going on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so now I guess we'd like to throw you a little bit of curve of a curveball. Um, you got your start with Baseball Prospectus with your column, Overthinking It. And mm-hmm. Overthinking It is in many ways the, the curse of any good baseball fan. So mm-hmm. I guess what we're wondering is, as a good baseball fan who overthinks things, what else do you find yourself overthinking in the rest of your life? Does <laughs> your uh, prospectus mindset, for example, ever transfer over to <laughs> politics or transit policy? How to relationships relationships <laughs> <laughs> there you go uh yeah that's probably one i've definitely overanalyzed text messages after dates <laughs> more than i should have um i i don't know i find a lot of baseball principles bleeding over into other areas all the time it, i sort of think of any subject from a, a kind of baseball framework like i I don't know. I think of things as as above replacement level. I think of <laughs> what replacement level is for a drink or a movie or really right. anything. Um, it's a useful concept, no matter no matter what you're thinking about. Um, and I'm I, I don't know. Just from you know, I was an English major and someone who is interested in stats, but not close to an expert in them, and I'm still not. But Having read so much analysis, baseball analysis over the years, uh, written by people who are smarter and more knowledgeable about those things than I am, I'm, I guess I'm more quick to question conclusions in other areas, sure. um, you know, and, and just try to find out whether there's some sort of bias there, some 
some false positive or small sample or all the sort of caveats that you come across Mm -hmm. in baseball writing uh, can apply to many other areas as well. Well, as a uh, as a brother podcaster, you'll probably be interested in a statistic that Alan was suggesting to me earlier today, which is bar banter above replacement. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> which you've done very well in, so we appreciate you uh, yes. <laughs> taking the time. Yes. Thank you. Well, your, your banter tool uh, will play up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Ben Lindbergh is the uh, editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. All 608 pages are on the shelves now. If you don't already have one, um, you're probably not listening to this podcast. But just in case, go out and get it now. And Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Baltimore Odds. The home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. And this is Alan Smith. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you had to guess which member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network once penned a Pirates of Penzance parody about the Orioles, and you had gotten over that amazing piece of alliteration we just successfully delivered into your earbones, <laughs> you would be forgiven for guessing that it's the same show which has also featured an adaptation of the Jabberwocky featuring sabermetric terms, which is to say, this one. You would, however, be wrong, because it turns out that our appreciation for a finely tuned verse is no match for that of Jake English, co-host of Bird's Eye View, one of our fine, fine sister-wife podcasts on the network. And today, for our seventh-inning sketch, we are proud to present to you his latest masterwork, I'm Just a Contract. Boy, you sure do have to step over a lot of home run plaques to get to the front office here in the warehouse at Orioles Park at Camden Yards. Hmm, I wonder who that sad scrap of paper is. Well, I'm just a deal, just a major league deal, and I'm hoping Dan Duquette makes me real. Well, it's a long, long journey to bring talent to Charm City. Long, long wait, and it really is a pity. Although I've got that triple-A feel, maybe this time the free agent is real. But today I'm still just a deal. Gee, deal, you sure have a lot of patience and courage. Well, I got this far, and when I started, I wasn't even a deal. No, I was just an idea. Some folks back home saw an obvious need on the ball club, so they took to the Twitters and they told Dan Duquette. And Dan Duquette said, you're right, we ought to get that ball back. So we sat down and contacted the players' representatives, and I became a deal, pending a physical. I'm just a deal, yes, a major league deal, and I hope the O's think I'm a steal. Well, I'm now pending a physical, so I'll sit and wait while the armchair doctors discuss and debate. What the scans and MRI will reveal And if the money and years have appealed But today I'm still just a deal Listen to those doctors arguing Is all that discussion and debate about you? Oh yeah, but this part only really happens in Baltimore So far I'm one of the lucky ones Most of the deals never even get this far Because free agents don't want to come here I hope they decide on me favorably Otherwise I might be voided 
avoided. Yeah, avoided for medical reasons. Oh, but it looks like I might make it. First, I go to the player's agent and he agrees to me. And if they agree? Well, then I go back to the front office and the whole thing starts over again. Well, I'm just a deal. Yes, a major league deal. And if the front office agrees to my terms, well, then I'm off to the owner where I wait in line. With some cases about asbestos for Angelo's to sign it. If he signs off, then I'll be a contract for an ace or a bat. Yes, I will, but today I'm still just a deal. You mean, even if the player's agent and the front office both agree to your terms, the owner can still say no? By that time, it's unlikely that you'll get signed at all. It's not easy to become a major league contract, is it? And let's not even talk about what it takes to become a free agent who might seem meaningful of bats. That's what I'd like to feel. But today I'm still just a deal. Hey, ownership has signed off. Unfortunately, you're not a major league contract, as we have to operate within the confines of our market, and I prefer not to do my business in the major league free agent market. Instead, you've been inked as a minor league contract, with an invitation to Orioles Spring Training in Sarasota, where you'll have every opportunity to compete with other minor league contracts for the various opportunities that we offer as well. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there are no words for how much I enjoy Jake English singing. I uh, Listen, Jake, if the whole Baltimore Sports Report Network thing does not end up catapulting us all to fame and fortune, which is hard to believe, it's hard to envision as a scenario, especially with all of the amazing talent of our sister wife podcasts, <laughs> who well, I think we forgot to mention overtly until just now. Indeed, indeed. But Hello, everyone. Great. <laughs> they are very good. Folks, get on over to BaltimoreSportsReport.com slash network and spend some time with them. Because if, you th- if you've had a good time for the last 45 minutes or so, you're scratching the surface. And the pipes on those over there at Bird's Eye View. My goodness. My goodness. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we'd like to thank Jake very much for submitting our seventh inning sketch for this week. Hey, if you have an idea for a seventh inning sketch... Uh, why don't you send it to us? Baltimoreonspodcast at gmail.com. At bmorons on Twitter. We'd love to take a look. You could also, just while we're thinking of things that you could do if you were sitting there listening to this podcast next to a computer with an open interface and the internet right there, head on over to iTunes. Mm-hmm. Give us a five-star rating. It'll be great. We we're Right now we're sitting at 20 ratings, which is awesome, but our ratings would like to drink legally. If you know what I'm talking about. You could be that magical that magical moment. Uh, we'd also like to thank Ben Lindbergh for joining us this evening. Uh, it was really, really awesome to get to talk to him. And we'd like to thank the musical artists who create the music that we <laughs> use on the show every week. Those musical artists are, as per usual, Marshall York, who wrote and performed the Baltimore Ons theme song, the band Town Hall, uh, a snippet. We use a snippet from their song, working for another song, Weather Report, who recorded the song Birdland, which we play between segments. Fish, which recorded the song Hoist, which we play between segments. The indomitable and thoroughly amusing, even uh, all these many years later, Schoolhouse Rock, yes. for their fantastic I'm Just a Bill song. Indeed. 
and behind me right now, as always, Kicking My Heart Around by the Black Crows. So, Sam. Yes, sir. What do you call the outcry which will surely erupt in the unlikely event that Henry Yerudia, A, manages to pull a pitch at some point, and B, when he does, it clears the SK out-of-town scoreboard at Orioles Park for a home run? Oh, that'll be a hullabaloo, a hullabaloo Rudia. Yes, it will. Had a little trouble with that one. <laughs> Talk to you next week. is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com.